Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Adventurer podcast. A very dangerous path. It is like being, it's like being an addict, definitely. You're, you're an addict to this um, endurance feeling, this, this euphoria of, of completing something and pushing past what you perceive your limits to be then. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made incredible journeys of endurance and courage in recent years. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends, leave a review, and connect with me at John Horsfall on social media. I am building a community of adventurous people, so it would be great if you signed up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com where I show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you the opportunity to come on the adventures with me. Now, on with the show. My next guest completed what most believed was an impossible challenge, swimming 34 kilometers across the English Channel to cycling across France and then climbing Mont Blanc, all in just four days and 20 hours. Having recently found out that she had the early stages of cervical cancer, she has founded a new charity called Lady Talk Matters, a vision to improve the lives of women and girls through education, awareness and inspiration. On this podcast, we talk about her impossible challenge and what inspires her each day. I am delighted to introduce Andrea Mason to the show. I suppose the best place to start is how did you get into these sort of epic adventures what sort of really triggered it for you I think so I've always been super sporty from from a young age I've always swam I've always ran um when I was four years old I was thrown into a swimming pool and swam 5,000 meters on my fourth birthday so I think (laughs) I would be I would be lying to people if I said it isn't something that I've always had a passion for and and done um, in terms of endurance type activities because swimming 5,000 meters on when you're four is probably very similar to the types of things I do now as as a grown adult. Um, But I did take quite a a break from um, sport between school and university and after that. Um, and really, I only got back into um, big endurance type events after I had been sick. Um, I had I suffered a lot from 
endometriosis and I was diagnosed in 2017 with cervical cancer and I wanted to do something um, while I was recovering. I I wanted to be able to have a a goal and a target um, and it needed to be something crazy. It needed to be something that really challenge that I was challenging myself. It couldn't be something that I had done previously, um, like you know, triathlons or an Ironman. It, and that's meant with no disrespect because an Ironman is, is crazy. <laughs> um, but I needed to have something to, to really focus on. And I think for us, it was, um, I wanted to have something that nobody had ever done before. Um, and my husband and I, we were just chatting about what could I do? What, what haven't I done? What have I always wanted to do? Uh, I've always wanted to swim the channel, but people have done that before. I've live in Chamonix part of the year. I want to climb Mont Blanc, but people have done that. And then Carl basically said, well, why don't you just do them both and cycle in between? Uh, and I think for me, that's, you know, that, that's really where this Sea to Summit journey started from. Yeah, I, I have to confess your Sea to Summit. I, I think I really wanted to do it a couple of years ago and I sort of had other things sort of pending, but it just, it looks like such an epic trip, you know, to swim the channel. I mean, sure, I imagine for you, it was incredible and also incredibly challenging at the same time did you find because you sort of build yourself up and you obviously like you said the cycling in between was a sort of afterthought did you think was the cycling just as hard as the swimming and the the climb it was in fact it was for me probably the the hardest part I went into it thinking as crazy as it sounds I went into it thinking the cycle was going to be my recovery that I, I'll swim. I'll swim across the channel, um, and then I'll have 900k to recover on my bike because it's it wasn't about speed. Yes, I had a um, limit that I wanted to do it in, but it wasn't about speed on the bike. But in actual fact, it turned out to be hell on earth the bike because a lot of it was a lot of it was in the dark in the middle of the night. I was cycling down a lot of canals on my own um imagining all sorts of things coming out of the trees and grabbing me uh yeah it wasn't I didn't love the ride (laughs) do you think that was because you might have sort of underestimated it you sort of because you built you've always wanted to do the swim you'd always wanted to do the climb and the cycling was sort of an afterthought and so your mindset was very much in those two bits those two components and then suddenly the cycling was very much like, oh, yeah, I'll just cycle. It's fine. We'll see how it goes. I always find when you you underestimate something, then that's when it. Yeah, I, it's probably very true. I think in my head, I I hadn't underestimated it because I had done a, a run of it before. So I, I did recce the whole bike route so that I knew exactly where I was going to go. Um, I knew, you know, how, what my average speed would be. And I tried to keep it very real, but I hadn't just got out of the swim. 
And I was doing it in the recce during the day um, because my I hadn't ever planned to start the swim at night. And because of the way the weather turned out, I had to start the swim leg across the channel at, I think it was six o'clock. So it meant my whole swim was in the dark. So then my plan turned on its head a little bit because once I get out of the swim, I had to rest. And then I was effectively getting back on the bike in the dark. And I hadn't, I hadn't factored that doing everything through the night really into the plan. So maybe, yeah, I underestimated that bit. I, it was interesting. You said, did you think that your diagnosis in cancer was a sort of trigger? I always find, well, you always hear stories. I, one that comes to mind is Lance Armstrong, but I know people sort of close to me who were sort of diagnosed and they sort of hit a switch in their mind that suddenly they have to want to live. They sort of feel like they've been doing, just ticking things over in their heads. And then suddenly they have this diagnosis and sort of propels what they would sort of been putting off for so long to the forefront mm. of what they want to do. Was that similar yeah. to what you had? I, In some ways, yes. But I think for me, it's more about my, my coping strategy. Um, at, at any point in my life where there's been something where I'm faced with head on with a challenge or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm faced with something that, um, you know, pushes me, that makes me think, I then always counteract that with doing something more, if that makes sense. So I, you know, I, I had this diagnosis and I knew that I wouldn't let that define me and that I needed to prove to myself more than anyone. I don't really ever feel like I have to prove anything to, to anybody else, but I have this um, something instilled within me that I have to face things head on and I have to beat whatever it is. And I've always had that. I think that's something that I've just been born with. <laughs> yeah, I no, I sort of agree. And so with um, that sort of swimming the channel, doing the route, I, for anyone listening, maybe go into a sort of bit of detail about the sort of route and the places you saw. Yeah, so the swim obviously started in Dover. So the, the swim across the channel is from Dover to Calais. It's 34 kilometers as the crow flies, but in actual distance, I swam, I think, about 41 kilometers. But you always say it's 34. The, it, it's 34 because you have different tides and different currents that are are either slowing you down and pushing you off course, or in some cases you have a current behind you that is that is pushing you forward. Um, initially, my plan was normally you start just after, one hour after high tide in the morning. So you would normally start around eight, nine o'clock. And my swim, I had factored to swim between 12 and 15 hours, um, which was a you know a good estimate for me uh, but unfortunately the weather 
when I started or the weather window, because you get given a one week weather window to swim the channel. Um, and I was, my weather window wasn't looking amazing. And I also had to feg, um, take into account the weather window for climbing Mont Blanc because there was two you know, logistical weather nightmares, one for getting across the channel and one for the climb because you also need good conditions for the summit in Mont Blanc. And I had to make a decision to start in a weather window at six o'clock at night. So I very quickly had to change my mindset to just be swimming in the dark, which was very different because it's not something that I had necessarily prepared myself for. I hadn't, I'd done one or two night swims, but not with currents and not with um, the waves and, and not as, certainly not for as long as I was going to be in the water for. So I started, the start was amazing. The weather was great. It was nice and flat. It was, it was, yeah, it was really ideal conditions. And then it started to get dark quite quickly. And within the third hour, I was really beginning to have all those thoughts in my head of what am I doing? Could I, could I not have just picked something slightly easier than this. This is crazy. Uh, and I was, I think because it, it had got dark um, and normally you have, when you're swimming in open water, particularly when you swim in the channel, you always have a point of reference. And a lot of people say swim in the channel is in two parts. You swim half and you can always see the cliffs of Dover behind you. And the other half, you can always see Calais in front of you. But because it was dark, all I could see was this little green light on the boat that was going up and down, up and down. It wasn't a fixed point of reference. So I got very, very seasick and I was throwing up for maybe four or five hours. I uh, couldn't keep anything down and I was just having to keep swimming and just, and it, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. I was just keeping one arm in front of the other and, and keep going until I got to the end. Um, I did, I, I did quite well though. I'd promised myself that I wasn't going to throw my toys out of the pram during the swim. I was going to keep it together during the swim. And I got to, I didn't know, but I'd got to within an hour, I was only an hour or so away from the finish. Um, and I started to get a little bit frustrated because I thought I was in a head current and I kept asking my support guys I know I'm in a head current when's it going to stop just tell me when when it's going when I'm going to get out of this um, and they kept saying you're not you're not just focus watch focus on the boat follow the boat um, and I kept swimming and I was oh. and then I threw it then I yeah I had a bit of a, a bit of a hissy fit and I was only five minutes from the end. So I, I threw my toys out of the pram well and truly. And I was five minutes later, I was standing up on, um, at Capgris. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Did you know, did you, I, so I imagine when you had your sort of fit, did you know that you were so close or? I didn't know. That was the frustrating part because I was, for some reason, I was fixated on a light uh, that turned out to be a lighthouse that I wasn't supposed to be following. And 
the my perspective was I was never getting any closer to that lighthouse. I thought that was the light that was at Cap Gris. So I'm looking constantly at this light and when I should have been following the boat that was heading to Cap Gris. Um, so I, in my head, I was just never, ever getting any closer and thinking I was in a head current. And all the while, I was really, really close. But the support guys, I wouldn't tell me that I was that close. Um, and they wouldn't for a good reason, because there's been a lot of people that swim the channel. And there's just before you get to Cap Gris, the tide changes and if you get caught in that tide change, it can add another three or four hours onto your swim. And that can happen within a five, 10 minute period. So all they were concentrating on was telling me to um, keep my head down, push, put, you know, just keep swimming. Um, because I was within five minutes of hitting that tide change. And then it could have been another three, four hour swim for me. So I was so close, but it could have been so far if I hadn't have just, if I'd have kept, kept putting my head up and moaning constantly, then it would have been a different story. <laughs> so you finished that at sort of five, six in the morning? Yeah, it was five, it was just after five because the swim in the end took me 10 hours, 57, um, which yeah, was faster than than I thought I was going to swim, which, which was good. So I I finished and I you basically you have to swim to land and then you have to swim back to the boat because you're not allowed to just get out on land because you have to go back to Calais and go through passport control. <laughs> you're not you're not allowed to just hop out and, and get on your bike. Um, yeah, so, that's sort of how I was imagining it. But yeah, of course, you. <laughs> it's how I imagined it when I first planned it. In my head, I was just swimming, swimming to the land. I'd hop out. Somebody'd be there, ready with my bike. I'd get on my bike. Um, sort of like a proper no. race, like quickly get up, go, go, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so I I got to the end, and then I you touch basically you touch the rocks, get out on land. And then you had to, I had to swim back. The boat can't come that close. So the boat was probably maybe 500, 600 meters away from land. So then I had to swim back to the boat. And um, a true story, I, the whole way, I swam the whole way there, didn't get stung by a single jellyfish. And in that 500 to 600 meters back to the boat, I got stung three times. Wow. So I didn't get stung once until until I'd actually finished the swim and going back to the boat. I also think once you sort of got onto land to then suddenly have to turn around and swim 600 meters, that must have felt like the longest 600 meters. It does. It It's crazy. <laughs> it, just how your mind perceives things when you've, yeah, when you finish something and you think it's finished and then you've got to get back to the boat. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And so you went through, so did you rest after that or was that, were you straight on the bike cycling? No. So I, once I got back onto the boat, it's actually from where Cap Gris is to the port, to Calais port. It takes about an hour on the boat. Okay. Um, so I was able to just have 
just refuel a little bit on the boat. Um, and, at, and in actual fact, I, I fell asleep on the boat. And that's probably about the only sleep I had throughout the rest of the challenge um, of any, yeah, of, of any decent sleep anyway. <laughs> Uh, so I I slept the whole way to to the port, and then once we'd gone through passport control and got out, then I did have um, a I think it was six hours rest because when you do a marathon or a, a long distance swim, there's a there's quite a big risk that you can get fluid on your lungs. Uh, because you're swallowing so much water, particularly in turbulent waters like the English Channel, so you, the you know the medical guidance is always to check that you haven't got any rattling on your chest, and it takes a while for that to set in. And if you do have that, you can um, cause yourself to drown internally. So it's never ever recommended that you do such a big swim and then do something straight afterwards. I think normally they mean by doing something straight afterwards, going for a little walk to the shop, not getting on your bike and cycling 900K. But <laughs> um, so I did, we, we, um, we had our camper van. So that's how we, we um, manage the rests and the pit stops and things. So I got in the camper van, um, had some food, rested, and then six hours later, I was up and on the bike. So was it just you and your husband sort of supporting each other or was there a big team around it? There, so I had, I did have a team. Um, uh, I don't ever do any of this alone too much. Um, <laughs> obviously, I do the, the swim and the bike and the, the actual physical elements. Um, but I do, I do have a really good support team around me. Um, this one in particular, I had a slightly bigger team, but it was more um, media. So it was it was media and the film crew. So there were there were quite a lot of people following, um, which made it which made it fun because there was always somebody there. There was always um, I was always looking out for a camera on the road. It it gave me something to to focus on a little bit. But primarily, it's it's myself and Carl. Um, we we yeah manage the logistics between us. He he's in the van making sure that all my food's prepared when I get to the the, the stop. Um, and then yeah, it, it's it's mostly just myself and Carl. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose having all these people around, sort of taking pictures, filming, was sort of encouragement because you're sort of there and you don't want to have the picture of you just sort of slacking off just as you it get around the corner exactly. or just pulling like a really sad face just sort of there smiling I know I know well Carl kept saying to me because there were some times where we would get somewhere and it was just it would just be me and him and I would have a bit of a meltdown and uh, there'd be tears streaming and I don't want to go down this canal again I can't see the aliens are getting me um, and he, there was a couple of times where he would say to me, why don't you do this on camera? <laughs> uh, they're not seeing, they're not good. You do know they're not going to be able to produce a, a film without any of these moments in it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who watches the film is going to be like, wow, I mean, unreal. 
This looks so easy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, so there were no tantrums no, caught on camera. <laughs> there, there were. Luckily, they in the end, I couldn't, I couldn't hide it anymore. So there were definitely some tantrums caught on camera. <laughs> so going down France, you went from Calais. Did you go down sort of to Dijon? Then yeah. Um, what's the other Dole? Sort of down that way. Yeah. And then crossover um, in so Bresse Bre- 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 or. Where's the bit over? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yep. Um, then down to sort of um, Lausanne, Lake Geneva. Uh, no, I didn't. Yes, no, I did. Sorry. Yeah, I came. I came up over the Jura, yeah. down into Geneva, and then up through to to Chamonix. Yep. Um, through Albertaville. Is that Albertaville? No, um, I went. I, I stayed on the back roads. Oh, so um, you went just before Annecy, you went up that mountain pass. Is that right? No. Um, so struggling to remember myself now. <laughs> it, so I, I came out of Geneva. Um, then I went, no, you're right, through Albertville. Yeah. Yep, yep. So up up through Albertville, um, then Bonville, Clues, Solange, and then up, up and over. Yeah. Beautiful scenery around there. Oh, it's amazing. The whole, the whole bike leg, um, was really stunning. Well, it was stunning when I did the recce and I did it in daylight. (laughs) This time for the actual challenge, I wasn't quite sure where I was at any moment in time. I don't think apart from the last leg, the last leg home was amazing because that is where it's. It's beautiful, and that leg happened to be in the daylight, which was good. <laughs> and so, once you got to Chamonix, was it again sort of straight off the bike into your crampons and straight up, or no? So I, once I got to Chamonix, I had another rest. I had eight hours planned, so the schedule was because I was targeting to do it within five days, I had a very, very precise schedule of where I was having the rest stops, how long those rest periods were going to be. So on the bike, for example, I'd broken it, broken it down into six stages and each stage was approximately seven hours riding and then four to five hours recovery. Um, And in that four to five hours, that's where I would need to eat and sleep and have a change and then then get back on the bike. Um, And the same was when I got to to Chamonix. So I had a eight hour recovery um, where because I knew for me, the the mountain piece, although we live in Chamonix, I'm not a mountaineer. um, That was going to be the most challenging part for me. I was petrified. <laughs> it wasn't so the the swim and the bike as hard as they were. I didn't have fear. I didn't have fear about those. I knew I knew I could do it. But the the mountaineering piece, I'd really only ever put crampons on my feet once, twice beforehand um, as practice runs. I'd I'd been out and I'd been doing a lot of high mountain things um and i'd obviously done all my glacier training and things like that but in it's not something that i'd I'd been out and and done a lot of 
Um, so <clears throat> I knew that I needed to be slightly recovered to start because I was starting from the valley floor as well. So typically when people climb Mont Blanc, they'll do it over two days. Um, they take the train part way up and then they start um, at the train and then they'll hike up to the Guta hut and then they'll stay, they'll have a rest or stay overnight in the Guta hut to acclimatize and then they'll, they'll go for the summit. But I did it from the valley floor, so I didn't take the train. I hiked up um, to where people normally get off the train and then just continued the whole way. We, we, did it in, we did it in one go. So I knew to be able to do that, that I needed to have that, that rest period factored in, in in Chamonix before I took off. Yeah. And what was, would you say, the, what were some of the highs from that sort of trip did you find? sort of moments of joy um, sound oh there were lots <laughs> there, there were lots of moments of joy and there were lots um completely the opposite um yeah the, i think that the best parts for me were um randomly getting hot chips brought to me in the middle of the night on the bike when i was in a phase where i was really not in a good place. <laughs> I was, I'd just come off one of the canals and I was hungry and cold. And um, a colleague of mine who had amazing, it was supporting on, on route, just in terms of watching and, and driving along. Um, he appeared out of nowhere in the middle of France at one o'clock in the morning with a portion of hot chips. Um, that, that was definitely one of the, the biggest highlights on, on the bike. <laughs> um, also I think along that theme, it's just the, the amazing support that I had from people D during, um, you know, my parents, they were there and they were, they, they were following along in the car, getting lost all the time. And so some of that was, was quite funny. Um, and just getting messages of encouragement from people along the way. And then on the climb in particular, for me, there's a, there's a, a part that I was dreading and that was going across the Grand Couloir where there's just a very short section where there's a lot of, it's quite renowned if you look it up when you're, you summit in Mont Blanc, but where it can be quite dangerous because there's a lot of rock fall. Um, and I had never, I'd never been across there. So getting across there was an absolute relief. Once I got across there, I knew I'd be able to make it to the summit. So that was a, that was a huge, huge highlight. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I imagine going down those canals at sort of late at night and then a good plate of hot chips is, it's just those little things sometimes when you're doing these trips that make such a huge difference. And for anyone listening, they sound so mundane and so basic, but when you're in that sort of mindset, it is just those little things that sort of acts of generosity and kindness, which mm. just go so far. It is absolutely. And I think also on the penultimate leg of the bike I also had I, I knew it was going to be one of the hardest stages because it was the biggest mountain climb stage of of the bike 
And again, because of the way the timings worked out, it was in the middle of the night. Um, and I, ha- I wasn't expecting anybody to come out and support me on that leg. And I had um, two good friends from Chamonix who drove down and actually rode that leg with me as well which I wasn't expecting and it just made made the world of difference. I mean, it just sounds like it was sort of one hardship after the other. What in the back of your mind sort of just kept you going sort of when times were really tough, you know, that sort of time when you're swimming and throwing up for five hours? Was mm-hmm. there a sort of moment where, you know, I imagine you've worked so hard for this. So in your mind, it's not, but what sort of motivates you to sort of just keep going? What's in the back of your mind that sort of pushes you through? And is that voice encouraging you on? Yeah. So I think, I think for me, particularly for the sea to summit challenges, there's, I, I have this platform that I'm using to promote awareness of, endometriosis and encourage young women and girls to have their cervical smear tests and having been through both of them you know both conditions myself that is always in the back of my mind of you know I've started this so there's no way I'm not going to finish it's just you know there's just no I don't even give myself that there's no option it's I I will finish this whether I'm throwing up whether I'm um, you know, exhausted, whether I, you know, my body just can't go any further. I've learned from doing this that it always can go further. So I never give myself that, that option. And I'm always thinking about why I'm doing it. Um, you know, one, always for myself, because I love doing these things and I love pushing my own limits but also to encourage other people to get out there and, and do similar things and promoting awareness of endometriosis and cervical cancer. Amazing. And what was the feeling like when you were standing on top of Mont Blanc, completed? It was, it was awesome. <laughs> it, it was, it was really, really just to get there and know that, that I'd finished and that I was at the top was absolutely amazing but and there was a big but I still had to get down <laughs> <laughs> so so for me actually get although because my whole challenge was C to summit so it finishes at the top it always finishes at the top or at, at the end in in the the one that I did this year but in that one particularly I I had to get back down the mountain and that petrified me, <laughs> to be honest, because I was so, t- I knew how tired I would be. And it's, it's tech, it, it, it's not super technical, but it's dangerous. You know, if you're, I, I've been, by that point, I'd been on the go for nearly five hours with very, very limited sleep. I really struggled to sleep throughout the whole challenge, even though I'd factored rest periods into it. I just couldn't switch my mind off, my body off. And I, I really, really struggled to, to get the sleep that I needed. Um, so I knew that I was going to have to really concentrate. I didn't want to get to the top and then fail coming back down <laughs> because I couldn't, um, I couldn't get back down because I was tired or, 
what whatever it might be. But I I had looked at other options um, and looked at getting helicoptered off the top, but couldn't do that because of the time of the year and a helicopter can't land from the French side. You'd have to go down onto the Italian side. I had um, looked at getting um, flown off the top with a paraglider, but we couldn't we couldn't find anybody that would be that would hike up because obviously they have to go up to be able to fly off. And then they you just can't with the conditions, you can't really predict whether it's going to be good enough to fly. But when I got to the top, there were two there were two paragliders stood at the top. And in my head, I was like, oh, Carl's done it. He hasn't told me and he's got somebody to fly me off of the top. And just as I was approaching the summit, so I'd convinced myself that they were there to fly me off the top so that I didn't have to walk down. Just as I got to the top, they flew off. <laughs> and I was devastated. <laughs> so I, I think in, in summary, there was a whole mixed bag of emotions when I got to the summit because I I knew I'd finished. I was excited. I um, you know, absolutely overwhelmed that, that I'd managed to do it. But I still had a long way back to get back down to be able to actually celebrate with the people that um, were around and wanted to to experience the celebration with me. I think that's uh, what a lot of people always forget is when you get to the top, I think we had Geordie Stewart on episode five who climbed Everest. And a lot of the time he, he sort of said that people die walking down Everest rather than climbing mm. to the top. You know, yeah, you're sort exactly. of hardship of getting to the top, having the photo, you sort of switch off and that's when it yeah. becomes quite dangerous. And Mont Blanc yeah. is a substantial mountain to climb. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I feel very sorry to go to the top to see those paragliders suddenly shoot off. Oh, it was devastation. It went from It went from a moment of euphoria to thinking... Yes, he's done it. He's man. He hasn't told me. He's kept it a secret, and I'm getting flown off the top, and I'm going to be home in five minutes. And no, it didn't turn out like that. <laughs> I, I bum shuffled quite a way of it down. Um, on the way down, my legs were just so tired. It was crazy. <laughs> and so, did this sort of spur on the next challenge you did this year? Was that is that the idea now to sort of do challenge after challenge? raising money for cervical cancer? Yeah, so the first one, when it started, it was just going to be one. <laughs> but it, it always ends up that way. There's never just one of anything once you start down this crazy path. I, I think um, always people sort of go, or when you're doing it or when you've done it, or even sometimes before you've even started, they just sort of say, oh, well, what's next? What's after? Yeah, you know, yeah. they're going, I've just been planning this for the the last six months. Um, I'm just going to do this. And then, of course, once you've done it, it's it's almost like a drug. You, yeah, it you is. You sort of had that hit. Um, on episode five, we were speaking with Jamie Ramsey, and he says, it's like this sort of hit. You've had it, and then it's sort of like, oh, I can do that. Now how can I better that? Yeah, yeah, you you definitely start down a a very dangerous path. It is like being it's like being an addict. 
definitely. You're, you're an addict to this um, endurance feeling, this this euphoria of of completing something and pushing past what you perceive your limits to be then. And then knowing that you've done that and then wanting to push further and wanting to do more. I think it's, um, yeah, the, there's definitely a, an addiction there for sure. And I finished, yeah, so I finished the first one and I didn't, I guess in the back of my mind, I, I knew there would be something else. There was no way I would be able to just sit and you know sit back and relax and think oh it's done it's that that that's it i've i've created i've created my platform i'm you know i've, I've done what i wanted to do There's, there was always going to be something else so and it didn't take very long it was probably about a month after that i was already busy planning the next one <laughs> uh, but so this this year though the plans did have, they changed quite significantly from what they were supposed to be because let's see, 2020 being the year that it is, it, I don't think anyone's plans have worked out the way that they hoped or wanted them to. Uh, so my, my initial challenge this year, I was supposed to be doing uh, what was called the Three Lakes so I was planning to swim the three longest lakes in Wales, England, and Scotland, run the three peaks, so the traditional three peaks challenge, and cycle all the bits in between. But because of COVID, we were in lockdown in France, and I wasn't able to get across to the UK in, in time to be able to do the challenge that, that I'd set out for myself. And we, so we had set off to the UK and then they, the UK brought in the, the quarantine restrictions and we were halfway through France on the way to the boat to come across. And the, we had to get there before four o'clock in the morning so that we wouldn't be put into quarantine or so we didn't have to self-isolate for the, the 14 days. And unfortunately it just... <laughs> We couldn't, I couldn't take the risk um, because I hadn't wrecked the course properly at that point. So I needed those 10 days to be able to go out and wrecky the course. The temperature in Lockor was dropping by the day. It was already, at, it was already sat at my limit. It was around 13.5 degrees. And if I, it sounds it sounds crazy, and a lot of people said to me, "Well, why didn't you just push it out two, three, four weeks?" the The temperature in Lockor can drop significantly in two to three weeks, and it just a forty one k swim at eleven to twelve degrees just it. I, I would have been crazy trying trying to do that at the end of having having done everything else. Um, I'm all about challenging and pushing myself but i have safety limits <laughs> yeah and that would have been beyond my safety limits you wear a wetsuit though when you do this i do yes um, i mean even still i jumped into 12 degrees a few weeks back and yeah it's uh it's pretty fresh it's, it's, eh? it wakes you up <laughs> let's let's say that yeah yeah i yeah no i i made the decision quite early on when I started these things that I, I was going to wear a wetsuit 
Um, I swim in the open water swimming community. It took a while for people to really embrace the whole I'm wearing a wetsuit thing. But it because I, I have so much, you know, there's a lot more to it than just swimming. Um, and I need to make sure that I'm not hypothermic, that I'm able to get on the bike. And there's, and also I can't afford to put on as much body fat as some of, some of the other open water swimmers do when they're setting out on, on a big open water adventure. Um, yeah, so I had to change very quickly the, the plans for this year. But fortunately, because I um, started down this addiction route, I already had next year's planned already. Well, not planned, but I had it in my head of what I wanted to do in 2021, which is effectively what I ended up doing this year, the Mont Blanc Triple Crown, which I swam around the perimeter of Lake Annecy, which to my knowledge, nobody has ever swam around the perimeter. A lot of people have swam one end to the other. And a few people have done the return. So they've swam from one end. They've done a double Lake Annecy swim, but nobody swam the 38 kilometers around the perimeter. So I started with with that swim. And then I rode um, the Tour de Mont Blanc. So it's quite a, a famous bike ride around Mont Blanc. It's quite... It, short in terms of distance compared to what I what I've done previously so the the bike itself is only 330 kilometers but it has 12,000 meters of climbing Uh, it's you you basically spend your whole time climbing 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 (laughs) and hurting and suffering (laughs) um yeah so then I I rode that and then I ran the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, which is well regarded as possibly the or one of the hardest trail runs in the world. It's 170 kilometers with approximately about 12,000 meters of climbing again. So it's pretty, pretty significant. So in terms of preparing for these expeditions, what's what's the sort of training program you sort of go through do you because to do something like your triathlon along the canal uh canal sorry along the channel and then cycle 900 i mean were you training nine months six months two years a year beforehand to get in shape to get in get prepared yeah so i think it for me yeah i I have a I have a really strong base level of fitness. I've I've always I've always had that. I've I've always been doing I'm always training regardless of what I'm training for. I'm always doing something. I'm always out and and training. But specifically when I'm doing a challenge, I would normally set myself a program 6 months out. So I'd have a dedicated program so I know exactly how much I'm going to swim in each week. I know what that cycle will look like for the month. And likewise with the bike and the climb, I know how many K 
K's I need to get in on the bike to make sure that I'm I'm prepared for for the challenge. I think yeah again it's about for me although I have a time frame everything seems to have come to this 5 days. <laughs> it seems to be a theme that that I've come up with now. But although I have that time frame it's not about going fast. It's very strategically planned. So it's strategically planned around having you know my energy systems in in the right place so that I can keep moving forward that I'm not totally drained that I don't have to have more rest than I planned for. So there's there's a lot more a lot of the the preparation and training for me is more around um energy efficiency, making sure that um my body is using the fuel that I give it along the way um and making sure that the logistics are planned to the second it's i i spend a lot more time planning my logistics and my nutrition intake than i do planning my training <laughs> the the training for me is the easy part that's the bit that i know i can do i'm i'm fit i can as long as i'm um fueled as long as i've got a really really nailed plan and goals from getting from a to b and know what i'm going to do then that's extremely important for me to have in place. You you had quite an interesting story on your website about uh pasta parties before your events and then mm. finding out you were you had celiac. Celiac, yeah. Yeah, so as a as a young girl growing up um in the swimming world, I you know, I I competed competed at a reasonably high standard and um, I would always, before a competition, we'd, you know, you're told to pass the load, carb load, eat pasta, eat pizza, eat um, anything that you can get your hands on that is, that is high in carbs. But unbeknown to me um, and my family, I'd, I do have celiac disease. And so I was always carb loading and never understanding why once I got to a competition that I was sick, I was always, always sick, um, always depleted of energy, found it very difficult to, um, you know, reach the standard that I was showing in training. So I was able to train really, really well. And I was, um, constantly on, on target to, to break records and, and do really well. And then I'd hit the water come competition and I mean, there were times that I would pass out in the middle of the pool and the lifeguards would have to jump in and get me um, because effectively my whole immune system just wasn't responding. And it wasn't responding because I was fueling it with the wrong carbs, the, the wrong things that I shouldn't have been putting into my body. And it was just having this, this effect on me. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't for quite a long time afterwards that we we realized that that's what what it the effect that it was having on me yeah i I think it takes a while to sort of work these things out, yeah, absolutely, not quite on the same level as what you had, but yeah, you know growing up, you're always so used to all these products that everyone has, everyone takes, and then 
you have them but you always feel slightly off and it's probably only later yeah. in life you work it out and you're like don't think that suits me very well yeah no absolutely and that's that's exactly what what was happening and it's very hard you know when when you're well even as an adult if you're you're being told that this is the right thing for you to take that this is what you this is what you need to do but it just doesn't agree with you i think ev- everyone is everyone is extremely individual and and unique in in what you need to be able to to fuel you to to do things yeah. I mean, that, that's an incredible story. But um, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest okay. each week. And so on your sort of trips and expeditions, what's the one thing while you're swimming, cycling or hiking do you crave? Which bizarre thing do you sort of crave, which other people might be like, mm, that's weird. Chicken nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately and I don't know where it comes from I don't have it in any other part of my life I don't I never eat chicken nuggets ever um but when I'm in when I'm doing these things whether it's the sea to summit challenges whether it's an iron man whatever it might be I get this overwhelming craving for chicken nuggets and I just I don't know where it's came from but it's there now and I can't, I can never get it out of my head. <laughs> Did you have a favorite adventure book? Probably Born to Run is, yeah, is still, it, it's not specifically adventure per se, but it's, um, it's one of the most motivating and inspiring books that I, I've read more than once. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I still need to finish it. I, As I was saying on one of my episodes, I was reading it before I did one of my runs, got halfway through, did my run, and then after that, I, I sort of washed my hands of running for a few months and <laughs> haven't, got, haven't quite got back to uh, finish, finishing the book, unfortunately. Oh, okay. No, I, um, I do. I, I think I was probably the same when I first read it. Um, I was... Yeah, that that can't really happen. That can't be real. That, uh, but then there's just so there's there's a lot of inspiration that that I draw from from that book. Yeah. Uh, did you have an inspirational figure growing up? Hmm. <laughs> I I th- I did. I think there's there's a few, but. Um, I don't really tend to, I, I'm inspired by a lot of different things. I'm, I'm inspired by and always have been by anybody and any person that pushes themselves out of their comfort zone um, or pushes their own limits. And that doesn't have to be for me. And I, I, this is you know something that's really important to me is it, it doesn't have to be somebody that is out there doing things you know, like I'm doing or other people are doing, or it's, it's very much, you know, you know, I use an example, my sister, you know, my sister, something, you know, amazing and inspirational would be if she went out and tried to do you know, the couch to 5k run, for example, that would inspire me significantly because she, you know, she's, she's pushing herself. It's not something that, that she's been able to do 
before. So I draw a lot of inspiration and always have as a child from people like that around me in my own circle. But I think in terms of public figures as I was growing up, probably Kelly Holmes, um, because I was always running and just you know, seeing in particular a, you know, a female figure who had gone so, through so much challenge and adversity in her life and eventually pushing herself to get her Olympic gold medals and just remembering sitting, watching it on the TV and how ecstatic it was and how amazing it, it brought the country together, I think, um, was, was awesome. And, yeah, other people, people like David Attenborough, um, just the, you know, the, to give you that sense of freedom and adventure and travel and, yeah, the, there's a, I have a lot of different inspirations that I draw from. So I don't think there's any one specific person that I can say they were on my wall. They were the person that I was always striving to be like. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have different elements and pick characteristics yeah. from different ones. So you're not alone on that one. And do you have a favorite quote or motivational quote? Oh, there's lots of them too. <laughs> I think um, probably for me, the one that I would use most often or that, that I like is every journey begins with a single step. So, you, yeah, it's, you know, there's no, you, you have to start somewhere. You, you have to start to be able to achieve anything. And it doesn't need to be a big step. It doesn't need to be a giant leap. It's just moving forward in, in the right direction. Yeah. And I suppose uh, people listening, always keen to go on these sort of big adventures and expeditions like you. What's the one thing you would recommend for them to get started? Always have a plan. <laughs> ne never start anything without having a plan. You, you can have the idea um, but if you really, if you really want to succeed and, and you want to be able to do it, then uh, for me, it, it's, it's all about planning. You don't, don't, don't see somebody cause I see so many people that try to be like you know, all of these influencers on Instagram or ad adventure people. And they think, oh, you know, this person's done it. They quit their job. They've gone off. They've traveled around the world. They've been able to do this, that, and the other. But you, you can't just do that. It's, you, you, have to have, you have to have some level of, of planning around being able to do that. And I think in, in this day and age, it's so easy to, to think that it's easy because it looks easy, but there's so much that, that goes into it. Um, so I think for me, it's, Always think out of the box. So don't don't restrain yourself to thinking, oh, I can only do this or I can't do this or you know, always think that you can do anything, but make sure you have a plan to be able to do that anything. Otherwise, yeah, you, you don't want to be knocked back. Yeah, I think we spoke about a story with, uh, I think that Al Humphreys, a guy was speaking and sort of followed him and had this 
idea he had a family and everything and sort of saw what al humphreys was doing and wanted to do that anyway so quit his job went off to go and cycle the himalayas Mm. and then after two weeks quit and said actually it's not for me really it's not for me um i like the comforts of home i miss my family and actually i suddenly realized that's what i enjoy and i'm quite happy to go on these small adventures but you know these big grand year-long month-long adventures are really not for me no and i think it's it's not always as glamorous or as um easy as it may seem in in the social media world as well yeah i I 100% agree with that (laughs) (laughs) so plan make sure if you're going to do something have a plan have a plan yeah okay and so what are you doing now and how can people follow you um so i right now i'm focusing a lot on my charity so i set up a charity earlier this year called lady talk matters which focuses solely on removing the taboo surrounding female reproductive health so it we we do a lot of work um, around endometriosis, cervical cancer, uh, period poverty, a lot of a lot of other conditions as well. So I'm really focusing at the minute on um, delivering value through through that charity, um, and as a way of fundraising, specifically to be able to deliver the things that that I do, I use my Sea to Summit Extreme platform to to fundraise um so i've got a lot of plans in the pipeline for next year for sea to summit challenges uh the main one being the three lakes challenge that i wasn't able to do this year so that is my that that's my big sea to summit challenge next year and i'll be running a virtual challenge alongside my challenge so people can can join and participate and, and push themselves and all proceeds will will go to Lady Talk Matters. Oh, amazing. And your Instagram handle or website? C to Summit Extreme. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And I have to say you have an incredible story and just really inspirational for anyone listening. Thank you. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you. Next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. Oli and I said no to our only chance of survival. Fact. And we paddled on towards the Faroe Islands and the fishermen went back to their fishing. And they genuinely believed that they were going to be the last people to see us alive. And they said this to to the cameras, you know, afterwards they're like we thought they were were gonna die we thought we were gonna be picking up a boat and looking for bodies later that day thank you for listening you can watch the podcast on youtube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com i hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure but till then have a great day and happy travels Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.